Hello and welcome to this episode of The Politics of Living. I'm your host, Denise Kowalczyk. This program takes a look at the politics and all that we experience in life, whether it's talking about navigating ageism or rebelling against racism. Politics are everywhere. On today's show, Dark and Dusty returns with a conversation with radio host Carl Wolfson. Kristen Thiel introduces us to two Marys rebelling against racism on the Shira solution. Tave Fashe Drake shares a conversation with author Renee Watson. And Deborah Giannini shares thoughts and a song. But first, storyteller Lynn Fitch shares her personal story about venturing into the great wide open. Live from the Old Church Concert Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. May the narrative be with you. So, just recently I turned 66 years old. And, and I'm eagerly awaiting my first Social Security benefit check in the mail later this month. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of people who are super excited about retirement, but right now I just say, mm, I'm kind of between jobs, kind of semi-retired. Retirement is just not in my vocabulary. Some people are looking forward to it, like my friend Mary. They know exactly what they're going to do, and they've got money to do it. That would not be me. About seven years or so ago, I hit this string of nonprofit jobs that, let's just say, they didn't go very well. And I have been unemployed just as much as I've been employed during that time. That's not so good for your cash flow. Let's say that my nest egg looks like it's been laid by a hummingbird. (laughs) You know? But it, it wasn't just the money. It was my confidence was shot. You know, before this happened, I had had a 30-year pretty successful career in communications and development. You know, and now I didn't even think I knew anything. I didn't think that my skills or my knowledge was valuable or useful. I had been a sought-after well-paid professional. And now all I felt like was a failure. You know, my identity was so tied to my career. The organizations that I'd worked with, the issues that I worked for, but that was all gone. I had nothing. And I was in this place of, I don't know who I am. And I don't even know what the hell I'm supposed to be doing now. It has been miserable. I can't say anything positive about this time. I've been anxious. I've been worried. 
I've been distraught, I'm confused. It's, it's been like six months of literal hell. And I've just been sinking into this depression, which is not like me, you know. I'm a good Irish Catholic girl. I can, I can find that, that happiness piece. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. But not this time. I just have been sinking deeper and deeper into this darkness. I've been eating way too much of things I shouldn't eat. I've been drinking too much to console myself. I've ignored and isolated myself from my friends and activities that I like to do. I've just wanted to be alone. And as someone who's pretty introverted, that became really easy. Don't call me. I'm not going to answer the phone. No, I'm not going anywhere. Leave me alone. It has not been a good place. It's, it's been really, really dark. So to save myself from binge-watching episodes of Mr. Rogers, <laughs> I decided that I was going to clean out my shed. And so I've been going through boxes that I have not looked at for years. And as I've gone through these boxes, I've found newspaper clippings and mementos and photographs from trips that I took when I was younger, when I traveled for jobs that I had. You know, that was a past, you know, that I buried and forgot a long time ago. But as I started looking at these things and remembering those times and holding this stuff, It was like, you know, this little flame became lit inside me. And I started feeling a little bit better. In one of the boxes, I pulled out this little blue business card. Lynn Fitch, station manager, Unalaska Community Broadcasting, and all my contact information. And on the flip side was the exact same thing, but it was translated into Russian. It's true. A long time ago, I was a station manager at a television and radio station in a fishing town called Unalaska in the middle of the Aleutian Islands. And I was chosen to be the media representative for a sister city exchange that was going to happen between Unalaska and Petropavlovsk-Kamchatsky, which was also a fishing town, but it was a city with millions and millions of people. It was an amazing trip. I mean, off the charts, cool. And I was able to produce a two-hour documentary after that. But I tell you that the most exciting part of that whole trip for me was when my KGB escorts took me up in a World War II helicopter to videotape 
an eruption of a volcano that was happening. That city was surrounded by three volcanoes. So we got into this helicopter. It's rusty. The windows are broken. I'm hanging out of the window with big old heavy video equipment. These guys are holding on to my coat and my feet. And we're flying over the crater of this volcano. You know, plumes of smoke, sulfur smell, lava, flames. It was awesome. I was having the most fun I had ever had. You know, when I think about it, and it, during this Cold War period, that I trusted these Soviet agents to hold me, you know, and not let go, was either a testament to my courage or my craziness or perhaps a little bit of both. In another box, I found a lanyard. And it had a photograph of a much younger and very serious-looking Lynn on it. And it identified me as a delegate to the United Nations Conference on Women in Beijing, China. I was a workshop presenter. And one afternoon, more than 200 women from all over the world crowded into this room to hear me talk about media relations. And I'll never forget when the question and answer period opened and this woman raised her hand and she said, you know, what would you do about a police state? What would you do with political prisoners? My husband's been incarcerated for years. I did not have an answer for her. I had no context for that. I was so humbled, and I have never forgotten that. A few days later, kind of afraid and nervous, I joined thousands of other women when we defied the Chinese government and we openly protested in the streets. We didn't get arrested. We marched as the women in black, advocating against needless suffering and violence and war. I can honestly tell you that I was a feminist when I went to that conference, but my time there really radicalized how I look at women's rights. In yet another box, I found an envelope with photographs. Photographs of these beautiful women from Borneo. They're, they're very small, petite people. Their faces were etched in beautiful tattoos. They wore these wonderful traditional clothing. And they had huge earrings in their ears. Well, I lived with these women and their families their, whose parents and grandparents had been headhunters. When I was there as an international journalist covering the installation of a microhydro project for a small community in the forest, I would follow the engineer and the villagers around as they installed equipment. 
that was going to replace kerosene and give them a renewable source of power. In the evenings, I'd sit with the women on the porch and I'd laugh at things I didn't understand. I chewed betel nut. Occasionally, we would smoke some local herb. I admit that I would get nauseous every time we would eat snake or monkey or any number of items I couldn't identify. But I got to see orangutans wild in the trees and beautiful rivers rushing through dense jungle. And when those tiny light bulbs came on for the first time, it was absolutely magical. I was so fortunate to be able to take those trips. I mean, totally a blessing. I mean, they were exciting. They were fun. And as I thought about those times and relived those times, just like now, I remember that I've always loved a good adventure. And I always liked exploring new places and new things. And I've always been a risk taker. I think that maybe I had to go back in time in order to embrace my life now and move forward into the future. I can honestly tell you that I'm not near as depressed as I have been. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. I'm feeling hopeful and optimistic. And I've been getting all kinds of ideas about you know, how I could bring that excitement and adventure into my life now. First, I'm going to have to, you know, have free time, and I'm going to have to have money. Well, I haven't been able to become gainfully employed, so I'm taking a different direction. I'm just going to start my own consulting business. Because you know what? I really do have skills and knowledge and experience that I can share and that would be useful to people. And I know that I can earn enough money to cover my traveling costs. I'm also going to have to be more fit and more healthy if I'm going to travel in the manner that I like. So I've become a regular at the gym. I recently got myself a new dog and I go out walking now three or four times a day, and we've even started doing hikes up in Forest Park. Uh, I've given up eating my sister's homemade cookies with ice cream at midnight, (laughs) and I'm watching portions and salt and fats. I'm trying to stick to, you know, the recommended daily allowance of wine that women can have. You know, but basically, you know, I'm caring for myself now as if my life and my ability to travel depended on it. And yeah, cheers. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I'm going to have to have some places to go. I've got to have destinations and a reason to go there. So 
I have started to reach out to friends that I have that are scattered around the world. And we've been reconnecting and reminiscing. And I have now a dozen invitations to come and visit and stay and have an adventure. Well, that's enough to take me well into my 70s. And I'm just getting started. I'm going to start off by taking a trek across the country of Israel. I'm going to climb a volcano in Russia. And I'm going to take a train all the way down the East Coast and meet up with a half a dozen friends who I came to know and love when I lived in Alaska all those years ago. And to kick off my retirement... See how easily I can say that now? Retirement. I'm going to take a two-week, 80-mile hike along the Pacific Crest Trail in the Cascades with my uncle, John, and my dog, Luna. You know, I just feel like you know, the adventurous, unconventional, free-spirited Lynn is coming back. Maybe she's always been here. All I know is it just makes my heart sing. In fact, I'm thinking about brushing off my old media skills and producing a podcast of these trips that I'm going to take. And I'm going to call it adventuring into retirement. (laughs) I believe that I've been grieving for what was and is no more. But I've turned the corner and now I've opened the door to ageless and endless possibilities. Darka Dusty is back with her segment, 10 Minutes with Darka, where she tries to save the world in 10 minutes or less with her various guests. This month, Darka's guest is Carl Wolfson. Carl's a comedian, radio host, and author, as well as an activist right here in Portland. Many might remember him um, hosting Carl in the Morning on Portland's Progressive Talk Radio. Hey everybody, this is Darka Dusty with another segment of 10 Minutes with Darka. My guest this month is Carl Wolfson, longtime radio personality, comedian, political observer, and all (laughs) kinds of stuff that I want to talk about. And Carl here is going to help me save the world in 10 minutes. Hi, Carl. Hi, Darka. It's great to be with you. Let's, Let's get at it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with me today. I've been wondering, um, I've been missing you on the radio because I used to listen to you every single day on 620 AM. Well, we had a wonderful, uh, I had a wonderful 10-year run on Portland radio. The first six was on KPOJ, as you mentioned. And I remember it was three days after the 2012 election when the program director came in and said they had flipped 
the format from uh, political talk, left-wing talk to syndicated sports. And, man, you know how much we love that show with yes, our Portland did. liberals on KPOJ. And it's hard to be a liberal sometime in Portland. I remember driving home so depressed. And, you know, I just drove my car into the garage and I shut the garage door and I thought, I'm just going to end it. And then after like... End what? End my life. <laughs> oh, and then no. after 20 minutes, I realized I have an electric car. So... <laughs> I couldn't even do Oops. it right. <laughs> Portland liberal. I guess that one's out. Yeah. yeah. Bring out the ropes. Just yes. kidding. <laughs> so I wanted to get into your brain for a few minutes because sure. we have a huge election coming up. We do. And I think it's going to be probably as important as a presidential election. Don't well, you think? Yeah, I do. And the, the bottom line is every election is important. And, you know, one of the things that really upset me uh, as a progressive and a progressive who supported Hillary and certainly didn't want Donald Trump anywhere near the right White House is that we had a lot of young people rioting after Trump's election. And I was watching TV interviews and half the people said they didn't even vote. Yeah. You got to vote. Yeah. You only get a chance in, in national elections every two years and you got to vote. And it doesn't matter that we're a blue state because we're connected now Everywhere around the world, what we put on social media, what products we buy is a vote in our everyday lives, Darka. And we've got to exercise that vote in a progressive, I think, manner every time we're out there. It isn't what state we live in. It's about how we live our lives. And people have got to get educated in civics. They have to get educated in history. They have to be educated by listening to these kinds of shows about what the truth is anymore. When I grew up, I mean, at least I think there was an objective uh, uh, re reality. The truth was, uh, you know, we kind of knew the parameters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had three TV stations, but we, we had some kind of objective truth for which we acted on, whether we were conservative or liberal or moderate. Today, as you know, I don't know, need to go into it, People can't even agree on what the truth is because there's so many agents and, and people out there dissembling the truth. That puts more of a burden on us, Darka, to really act as individuals, to learn history, learn the facts, to be an enlightened voter. Because otherwise, our democracy is going to sink pretty quickly. That's true. And I think that this dispels any... Um Basically, when, when the last election happened, I had so many people telling me that their vote doesn't count as much because we're going to, Oregon's a blue state. Right. But what you just said is, is exactly right. right. Um, everything that we do matters because this whole world has just become a lot smaller with social media and internet. It has. It has. And, you know, educate yourself about what, what elections are, who runs the local elections. You know, we, we're lucky to have vote by mail here yeah. in Oregon and in, in Washington and Colorado. And one thing we got to make, one thing we have to make sure is that people in other states and throughout this country have the right to vote because that's under assault with voter suppression from the Republicans and from the right wing. So these, even if you think that, oh, Oregon's a blue state, I don't, I don't need to go out and actively work for a Democratic or progressive candidate, you can also, which I think you should do, yeah. but you should also work on other issues like access to voting, uh, Black Lives Matter movements. There are so many things that we can work on because they're part of our lives. You don't need to say, oh, I'm going to be overtly political. We exist in this world. Yeah. And to make the world the place that we want it to be as progressives, as fair and equal and just, that requires uh, action every day. And we all have the power to do it. 
What do you say to those people who are just so emotionally fatigued from everything <laughs> that they are shutting down completely? But well, we need those people, right? What do you say to them? Well, I've got a remedy because I think um, I'm kind of proud because I started uh, comedy full time in 1980 at the Comedy Store in Hollywood. And I've done it for decades. I'm proud, for instance, the comedians are leading the resistance. You look at Samantha Bee and, and, um, and Seth Meyers. Jimmy Stephen Kimmel, Colbert, Stephen Colbert, stuff. incredible. Jimmy Kimmel's mm-hmm. jumped in. I mean, uh, uh, Trevor Noah. They are leading the resistance, and they have been John leading Oliver. John Oliver. They've mm-hmm. been leading the resistance from day one because they're kind of taking our angst, our collective angst, and putting it through the prism of what they do well, which is comedy. I mean, turn on those shows, and it'll it'll. I know a lot of this stuff doesn't make us laugh per se, but comedians can kind of put it in a form where we can, there's a pressure valve, where we can laugh about things, let the steam off as we get get more energy to go back and fight the battles, which may not be so funny on their face. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. I think that's a, that's a prescription for being a little happier about what we're doing. Laughter gives energy. Got Absolutely. It. You know it. So and we Ukrainian have... music. You've ah. got to listen to a lot of Ukrainian music. That's what you need Ow. to do. How did you know? I know. Laughter and Ukrainian music, and Trump's going to be gone. Trust me, Darkin. See? All right. All right. Um, with the three and a half, three whatever minutes we have left. Um, I understand this is the first man you've had on Well, the that's show. what I was going to say. You're, yeah. you're my first man. Yeah. My first <laughs> At least man, on the radio. My first man in 75 was about three and a half minutes, so I think oh. it works out well. Yeah. <laughs> Well, hello. Um, I just want to say thank you for being my first male guest. And I want to know how, again, we, we have to save them 10 minutes. So you only got about a couple minutes to tell me. But what did you perceive? What did you feel from the Me Too movement? I how, did it, you, how did you I just think it's so long it? overdue. And look, I, I just mentioned I started comedy in 1980 at the Comedy Store. And, uh, you know, uh, comics back then were doing material that we cannot do today. I mean, Seinfeld even admitted that some things that he did on that show were not um, were not in proper taste right yeah. now. So I get it. You know, I've been there when there's misogynist comics on stage or some, you know, anti-gay comics and even some uh, racist comedy on stage. I think this is long overdue. And I'm so proud that not only women have stepped up with the Me Too movement, but we see young people for whom the world is a much more equal place. taking taking their leadership role and i you know being a gay man you know i've i lived for most of my life with kind of eh, discrimination subtle discrimination much like white privilege asserts itself straight privilege asserted itself but you know and i live with that just as women have lived with misogyny and and male privilege i just think we are stronger, and this is, sounds very simple, but we don't always work it this way in this country. We're always better understanding that multiculturalism difference is a thing that makes us stronger. So I see the Me Too movement fitting into all the social justice movements, whether right. it's civil rights or gay rights or women's rights. I think it's a natural consequence. And here, here it is, Darka, come from your truth. Be who you are. You know, I just finished a book I want to plug called Slide. It's, it's okay. my uh, childhood memoir. And nice. uh, you can get it at Broadway Books or Annie Blooms or Powell's or online. Slide, Carl Wolfson. And the greatest piece of information I ever had about writing was from a journalism professor in college who said, write what you know and tell the truth. This is my childhood memory from my heart. Yeah. And that's good advice for being who you are, being a vibrant person, no matter your sexuality, your orientation, your gender, only then can be, we can be proper, I think, fulfilled in our role in society and making society better as a whole. 
And living your truth can be the most radical act you can do. Absolutely. If you look at the, the scope of human history, Darka, uh, it hasn't been really that long that people have been able to live their truth fully. And we still have many parts of this country today where you can't, let alone, you know, other corners of the world where it's a lot darker than it is here. So let's set the example. And part of it is by having these conversations that we're having here in 10 minutes. Because right. these conversations, most of them aren't taped, most of them aren't on radio, but they happen all around, and that is how we learn and grow, by communicating with each other, sharing our truths, and what we find at the bottom of that truth is our common humanity. Oh, how beautifully put. Well, I'm running out to get your book, seriously. I urge <laughs> everyone funny. to get Carl's book. It's seriously. a funny <laughs> memoir. It's, it's pol politics in the, in the early 60s. Uh, baseball that a team that I grew up with and mainly my dysfunctional family and you know we all had those oh, I'm assuming sure. you had one right? are you kidding all right good way to end it talk Absolutely. about humanity <laughs> yeah maybe maybe you'll let me do a part two with you closer any, to election day anytime you, you just come over anytime okay. and we'll have this conversation because and get out and vote 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 learn organize vote thank you Darka <laughs> thank you Carl that was great did you all hear that everybody learn organize vote We'll see you next month with 10 Minutes with Darka. And thanks again, Carl. Have a wonderful you night. Bet. Thanks, everybody. Next up, The She-Raw Solution. It's a monthly biography of women past and present. Its title is inspired by Maria Teresa Hart's article, She-Raw and the Fight Against the Token Girl, published by The Atlantic. In today's segment, Kristen talks about two Marys, Mary Turner and Mary Thomas, and their rebellions, both deeply personal and highly political, against racist systems. As the 19th century turned to the 20th, Mary Hattie Graham was born. She was one of four children in the Johnson and Graham household. Betsy Johnson and her husband, Perry Graham, were sharecroppers. As a young teenager, Mary met Hazel Turner. They fell in love and had two children, Ossie Lee and Leister. Two months after her 17th birthday, Mary married Hayes, as he was known. They moved their young family 30 miles southeast to Brooks County, Georgia, where they found work on Hampton Smith's plantation. They soon learned that the terrifying reputation the 31-year-old had earned was true. Hampton was mean, unjust, violent, abusive. He would bail petty offenders out of jail just to force them to work off their bail money in his fields. One time he severely beat Mary. Hayes defended her, and Hampton called the police. Hayes was sentenced to time on a chain gang. Eventually, one of Hampton's workers had enough. 19-year-old Sidney Johnson, who had ended up in jail on a minor gambling charge, and then ended up in Hampton's fields because of sheer bad luck of being bailed out by Hampton, killed Hampton. You see, though Sidney had worked, his debt never decreased. When he was sick and couldn't work, he was beaten. So one day... Sidney walked up to Hampton's house and shot the man as he sat in front of his window. The response from Hampton's neighbors was swift and extremely violent. Over the course of one week, 13 African Americans were lynched. Three of those people were Hayes, Mary, and their unborn child. Mary was eight months pregnant at the time. 
Hayes was murdered as retribution for Hampton's death. Mary and her baby were murdered because she defended her husband's innocence, and she needed to be taught a lesson for that. Of course, what they were really executed for was for being African-American. During that one week, more than 500 African-Americans were forcibly displaced from their homes in two counties as they fled for their lives. Although it was no secret who was in the lynch mob, no one was ever charged for the murders. In response to Mary's murder, the NAACP managed to convince Missouri Congressman Leonidas Dyer to write the 1922 Dyer Anti-Lynching Bill. It passed in the U.S. House of Representatives, but failed repeatedly in the Senate. Today, the Mary Turner Project hosts an annual commemoration in Georgia. The Grassroots Collective is working on a free, searchable database of lynchings. Mary Turner was born long after slavery officially ended in the United States, yet she was forced to live in conditions very similar to slavery, and she died being treated as a subhuman property. Mary Thomas, born into the colonial Danish West Indies, also after that country had abolished slavery, experienced something very similar. While the U.S. is struggling just to say Mary Turner's name, to remember her as a human being, in Denmark, Mary Thomas is being hailed as a queen. In March 2018, a 23-foot-tall statue called I Am Queen Mary became the first public monument to a black woman in Denmark. Grasping a torch in one hand, and a sugarcane knife in the other, the statue of Mary looks out across Copenhagen, the capital city of the country that held her in servitude. Her pose is meant to remind viewers of a 1967 photo of Black Panther's co-founder, Huey P. Newton, in which he too is seated regally in a wicker chair, spear in one hand, rifle in the other. Like Newton, Mary led a revolution. Though Denmark abolished slavery in 1848, Slave-like conditions continued on the island of St. Croix. Black people were forced into contracts and then were abused by their bosses. On October 1, 1878, the workers' frustrations boiled over. Three women led a revolt. Axeline Elizabeth Solomon, Matilda McBean, and Mary Thomas. They set fire to houses, sugar mills, and 50 plantations around the island. Mary was arrested, tried, and sentenced to death. The sentence was later changed to a life sentence in prison with hard labor, in prisons both on the island and in Denmark. Mary and her two co-leaders were known among their followers as the Three Queens, though it is believed that Mary preferred to answer to Captain. I'm your host, Kristen Thiel, and I'll be back next month. Contributing producer Tave Fashe Drake also has a podcast called Peace, Love, and Soup with co-host Brian Delaney. Today, they share an interview with native Portlander Renee Watson, a multi-award winning author now living in New York. Renee recently celebrated the one-year anniversary of I2 Arts Collective that is committed to nurturing voices from underrepresented communities in the creative arts. Tave, Brian, and Renee talk about the power of sharing your voice, the importance of libraries, and the universal connection of food and community.
We'd like to welcome to the show Renee Watson. She's the recipient of the Coretta Scott King Award and Newbery Honor, as well as a New York Times bestselling author. She's an activist, educator, and writer of children's books, novels for young adults, and poetry for all. It's a pleasure to have you join us on Peace, Love, and Soup, Renee. Hi. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. This is just really an honor to have you here. Yesterday was International Women's Day. How did you spend the day? I spent the day highlighting some of the women in my life who are helping to keep me afloat. So I am just starting a nonprofit called the I2 Arts Collective, and we're housed in the Langton Hughes Brownstone in Harlem. It's a group of women who really have been helping me get this off the ground. And so I spent a lot of time on social media yesterday. It's been our year anniversary. So I was just shouting them out. And thank you. And um, loving on them a little bit and thanking them for keeping me going. (laughs) Sometimes I get the attention, but it's a lot of people behind the scenes who are helping me to, to make that work. Fantastic. What women have inspired you as both an individual and as an artist? So artistically, I'm inspired by Sandra Cisneros, Jacqueline Woodson, Rita Williams Garcia. Those are some mm. authors that I admire and respect. In my personal life, I'm so fortunate that I'm the youngest of five, wow. and my brother is the oldest. He's the only boy. <laughs> I have a family of sisters who are just great role models. I'm just very fortunate that. I didn't have to look too far to find strong, powerful, brilliant women. And are you the only writer in the family? I'm the only creative writer. Most of us work with young people in some capacity. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I'm the only one that's a published author. Did you have a favorite author growing up? Oh, let's see. I mostly read poetry. So when I look back at my childhood, I think about Gwendolyn Brooks, Maya Angelou, Lucille Clifton. Those were women that I read and just devoured their words. At what age did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Was there like a definitive moment or was it just something that was sort of simmering the whole time? It's interesting. I've been in love with words since I was a little girl from like seven years old. I used to write poetry a lot and 21 page stories and sharing them with my teachers and family. But I don't know that I really understood that a girl like me from Northeast Portland could actually become a published writer until I was much older, like early college, when I really started thinking like I could make a career out of my writing. I found my voice through writing in my journal and really used my journal as a place where I would ask questions and process what was going on in the world, kind of speak up in ways that I couldn't speak up in my real life. I remember having the bookmobile come around as a kid, and that was sort of a magical place and treat to hop on board and check out a couple books. It was public, unlike a journal, but at the same time, there was something very personal about it as well. Will you talk about the power of reading in the public library system? Oh, my goodness. I think there's just nothing greater than having this space where any type of person can come and check out a book. It's such a gift. You can open up whole worlds to people. They have access to seeing themselves in books and see how they can become powerful in small ways through the characters that they're reading about. So, yeah, I'm a big advocate for public libraries and making sure young people frequent those spaces. You give lectures and talks at libraries. Yeah, I speak to the kids <laughs> at the North Portland Library, and I applaud all the libraries who work tirelessly to bring in authors to come read to kids and do writing workshops with young people. I think that's really important. Agreed. Definitely. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, 
I'm going to go cry. speechless on you and probably <laughs> start crying. I had the honor of facilitating your reading that you did last mm. year as part of Wordstock at the Portland Art Museum. And what struck me specifically was not just the rapt attention that the adults gave you, but that attention that the children gave you during the mm-hmm. Q&A. It was you really saw them. You know, it's interesting. I've been working with young people since I was young. When I was a junior in high school, my English teacher would take me to her freshman class and have me do writing workshops with them. Um, My youth pastor would take me to middle school students to give some kind of motivational talk or share my poems. I started to be a mentor in my early 20s and have been working with young people in a professional way ever since. My first job was with the I Have a Dream Foundation, and it changed my world. When I came to New York, worked for organizations called Dream Yard and Community Word Project. So, yeah, I've worked with young people for at least 20 years. And are some of the kids you worked with years back, did they stick with writing or poetry? It's so exciting Mm. that some of the young people who were in my poetry workshop are now slam poets that are traveling around the nation and doing their thing and working on their one-woman show or things like that. It's so rewarding to see. I love hearing this, the whole creative process and that stories are, you know, something that we can tell one another, but they can show up in so many different forms, right? It could be a song. Mm -hmm. It can be a slam poem. Renee, how do you define storytelling? What's a storyteller to you? A good storyteller can make the invisible visible. There's always stuff happening in the room and going on that we don't name and we don't talk about, but it's happening. And storytellers that I like to listen to or that I try to be take that invisible stuff, the stuff that's not tangible, and make that something tangible with words. And that's the power of storytelling. We get to know people who maybe we think we're so unlike, and then we listen to them and we're like, oh, I relate to that person or at least I can empathize with where they're coming from. And I think that's why storytelling is so powerful is because it can really bring people together and it can also validate your experiences. If you were like, yes, amen, I know that. And someone else is speaking my truth, that can be very impactful for a person. Well, in all your travels around the world, what is something that has inspired hope in you for our future? Oh, my goodness. So right before our last election, I was in Korea for an international poetry exchange program that I've been a part of through my work with Dream Yard, which is a nonprofit in the Bronx. And we have this poetry share that students from the Bronx, Korea, and students in Japan, they share poems, they ask each other questions, they're getting to know each other. And usually this is happening like via satellite. So we actually got to take our students from the Bronx to Korea. Wow. And we're all gathered and... This is these beautiful, powerful poems about, you know, their own identity, what they care about, what they want to stand up for, what they want to change in the world. And there was just this moment of stepping back and being like, you know, yes, the world is in good hands. Like, these are our future leaders and they're poets, they're artists, they're kids who literally are from different cultures and have come together through writing. And it was just so nice to see them genuinely asking each other questions about where are you from, who do you love, what are your traditions. I felt very hopeful about that, especially because, you know, when we came back to the States, we had an election and it was like, okay, great. We're going to need these young people to help make change. Brian and I both have goosebumps. (laughs) 
it's an amazing thing to hear you say that. It's very synchronicitous because our next episode that we're going to do is going to be all on teens. And we've mm-hmm. been sort of referring to Generation Z as Generation Zeal. Mm-hmm. Yes, I like that. I was in Generation X and I hated that. I mean, I just think it's so crazy that we name generations in a negative way, right? But you name something that's important. So why would you call a whole generation something that doesn't, speak to who they can be and what they can become. So I love that you're doing that. Thank you. Yes. And with all of this, they are going to be very unaccepting of the way things have been going. And they speak out. They're active. They expect diversity. They expect goodwill. They expect change. And in your book, Piecing Me Together, the character Jade is a collage artist. And I'm wondering if you would talk about this way of taking different pieces of something and putting them together in such a way to show a truth. So I chose the medium of collage just to create this kind of extended metaphor through the book of things that people discard or that are just ordinary. Um, Jade is able to take those things and make beauty out of them. And I think it's a powerful thing to be able to literally make something out of chaos and that these collages in the book are physical examples of how she's doing that with her own life. How can you take this sad moment, this argument, these good grades, this beautiful moment you've had with your best friend, and make a full life out of that? Sometimes teenagers especially feel like whatever's happening in that moment is all that's ever going to happen. You know, you, Mm -hmm. you break up with someone and it is the end of your world forever. You get in an argument with your parents, you can feel so devastated. But then at other moments, right? And so just trying to help young people have some tools for coping with what's happening in their lives, personally and also nationally, what's going on. Collage just felt like a good medium. You can tear, you can cut, you can glue down, rearrange. And I think that's a good skill emotionally to be able to have. And I think uh, you can still uh, eat yeah. the paste now, too. I don't want to make a joke out of that, but didn't you do that as a, with collage yeah, as a kid? And water, Sorry. I was a paste eater. <laughs> Sorry, Renee. I didn't eat a paste, but I like to smell the markers that would smell, mm-hmm. you know, grape or strawberry or whatever. <laughs> the cover for your book, too, is beautiful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Brian Collier, he's amazing. He has several picture books, and I knew as soon as I finished the book, I was like, oh, I wonder if Brian Collier will do the cover for this, because I just knew that he would do right by Jade and by Portland. It's Mm -hmm. really hard to get Portland right on a book cover. I've had trouble before, just like, oh, this doesn't have the feel of Oregon. And I I knew that he could create it, and he did. I really loved the cover. I do, too. And I think just the whole visual aspect really speaks as a metaphor for all of us in this time. And if you don't see something out there representing your truth in the world, you can piece exactly. it together, right? And I think that also applies to food. I definitely think if we think about baking a cake and all the ingredients that stand alone, like no one's going to just eat spoonfuls of flour, but mixing that together with sugar and all the other ingredients does make a beautiful cake. And so I do think cooking, yeah, it can be a metaphor for life in that there are some horrible things alone and maybe even some too sweet things alone, but mixing that bitter and sweet can sometimes bring about a balance in your life. Mm-hmm. And there's that comfort aspect as well. I mean, I mm-hmm. notice that food, to some degree, it's very visceral in your writing. For example, in Piecing Me Together, when she goes to get JoJo's or when she's talking mm-hmm. about her mother's cooking. So I'm wondering, what role does food play in your writing? Do you consciously do this? I'm assuming you do. 
No, it's it's a little subconscious actually, just mm-hmm. because it's so prevalent in my culture and my family. Mm-hmm. We gather around food for celebration, for grieving, for all of it. That it's an automatic thing to write about and include in my book. There's lots of scenes in the book where Jade and Maxine, her mentor. Mm-hmm through eating together, um, are able to work out some of their differences. So I think food brings people together. And cooking together is also a special thing, too. You know, teaching someone how to make something, sharing your recipes with them can bring bonding and deeper relationships. Uh, Renee, we're going to need to probably use a whole chunk of what you just said as a little plug for our whole show. This is exactly what we're trying to do here, bringing people around the table together. And it's one of the few ways we still get together in this culture Mm -hmm. where everyone's so disconnected is still around food and and yeah. in the past couple of episodes, instead of us making the soup for the month, we go to a person's home and cook it with them. And so oh. actually this month, we went to a friend of Tave's. We went to Baba Wage Jockite's house, and we made Tigga Digga Na with him. And it was just a really fun experience to talk about storytelling with him mm-hmm. from a traditional African sense, as well yeah. as making this peanut sauce. Uh, have you ever had that soup, Tigga Digga Na? I haven't. I'm allergic to peanuts. Oh. oh. I know. It cuts me out of so many really good things. Well, we learned in our Did You Know segment that if you were introduced to peanuts at a very young age, it might have cured you of your allergic reaction. That's what one study said. It was interesting. (laughs) So now I don't need to ask you the question, crunchy or creamy, which do you like better? (laughs) (laughs) But the biggie. The big question that's been on everybody's mind, Renee, (laughs) is do you like soup? I love soup. Yeah! <laughs> and what's your favorite soup? One of my favorite soups is curry, Jamaican curry. My father was Jamaican, and that culture is very much a part of my life, especially it shows up in the food that I eat. And so just this curry chicken soup with mm. big chunks of potato and onion, and you can put carrots in it, and you just simmer it all day. It's a very thick broth. It's so good. Mm. And sometimes, depending on who I'm cooking it for, I might add coconut milk just to give it a little sweetness. And what I like about this soup is we make it with the actual chicken wings. So you get these big chunks of wings in your soup. And those wings simmered all day in the curries. Yeah, so the meat is just falling off the bone. I'm salivating. Oh, my God, totally. (laughs) Well, with that said, thank you, thank you, thank you for your time today, Renee. And it was so lovely to talk to you. Thank you for taking time to talk with me. It's so good to talk to people in my hometown. Well, Portland misses you. Yeah. And can you tell our listeners how to find out more about I2Arts as well as any other space that you'd like to send them to for your other stuff? Sure. So the website is i2arts.com, like T-O-O-2, I2arts. And that has all the information and history of behind what we're doing. And then my website um, is my name, ReneeWatson.net. And through there, besides my writing, you can find all the projects that I'm involved in. We're delighted that you're moving all about the world, spreading this wonderfulness, reading, writing, activism, and living your truth. If you're ever here and you have time, we'd love to do some cooking with you. Yes, I would love that. All right. Well, thanks for being with us on Peace, Love, and Soup. Take care. More information and links can be found on our show page by visiting kboo.fm and searching for The Politics of Living, Episode 16. You can also learn more about Tave's podcast by visiting kboo.fm and searching for Peace, Love, and Soup. 
Now, Deborah Giannini returns with Songbite. On today's segment, she shares a song by Annie Gallup. I'm Deborah Giannini, and I'm a neo-folk artist. I do music in the vein of folk music, uh, not necessarily the uh, traditional standards that you might expect. The neo-folk genre includes people who are writing songs that are reflecting our times and the circumstances that we find ourselves in today. Pretty complex stuff out there. It's great to have poetry and art and music. I'm doing a song today called Bird by Annie Gallup, covering this song about loss and redemption. Uh, It is a time uh, when many people are feeling those kinds of things and dealing with loss. I um, also know that it's a great tribute to love, and uh, like many people, I'm grateful for having that in my life. I'm going to speak a little bit about this song after I play it for you, too. It's a short one. But today, as I play it, it's a a song I've covered for a while. I love Annie Gallup's poetic work. But today I'm dedicating it to my love, Denny Malore. I slept like a baby in a strange bed the unspoken mystery of love and everything while far away in my hometown my house and home burned to the ground I am a bird that sings It was nobody's fire and no one's fault. Gone to ash, the box that held my mother's ashes from scattering. And the wire and the melted tin that held the yellow canary in. I am a bird sings first heard that song, I had to ask, oh, Annie, did your house really burn down? And the answer is no. It's a metaphor, a poetic license, the way that 
that our creativity works. Uh, but it certainly is um, a song that speaks to me about the fact that we do have loss. Things do change, sometimes really radically. Sometimes things are absolutely destroyed. And yet, we see life comes back. Things emerge, the phoenix from the fire, or the beauty of the simplicity that's left. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of The Politics of Living. Thanks so much to our guests and our contributors, Kristen Field, Darka Dusty, Deborah Giannini, Tave Fashe Drake, and Lynn Fitch. Also, thanks to our technical editor, Liam Delta, and webpage manager, Vicki Mazzone. Be sure to visit kboo.fm and search for The Politics of Living, Episode 16, to find the links about today's topics and guests. Thanks so much for listening to The Politics of Living. I'm Denise Kowalczyk. Have a great day.